0: So if you have been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are currently in a series called We Believe. We are studying the Nicene Creed, which is a 4th century document that outlines the core tenets of the Christian faith. And the reason why we wanted to focus on these is to see what unites us together as believers. Uh, Within current American, I think it's fair to say, American culture, it's very easy to divide and to ostracize and to push people off. You don't have to go very far in your Facebook feed, I don't think, to see the fruits of that over the past few weeks and in the few weeks to come. Um, but we also are pretty adept at that within the church life as well. Uh, so we wanted to take some time and celebrate the, the core theological truths that we as Christians believe uh, in our heart of hearts and to rally around those things. There's so many uh, beliefs that can divide us, but we wanted to focus on some of those uh, that unite us together. And we have been looking over the past couple weeks at the life of Jesus. Now, within the Nicene Creed, this is a fourth century document, and they were trying to figure out who Jesus was and to avoid heretical teaching. They wanted to avoid um, bad teaching about Jesus and to stay in line with who Jesus was, but there was folks around at this time that were infiltrating the church and teaching bad doctrines. Some of those bad doctrines are underneath of the surface in the Nicene Creed, and this is why we have some very um, philosophical and theologically dense language to describe who Jesus is. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is begotten, he is not made, and the creed is trying to answer some controversies at the time with regard to who Jesus was, specifically with his divinity. Some people were arguing that Jesus was a little bit less than God. He was more divine than you or I, but he was not quite on par with God. And the creed wants to affirm who Jesus is as one who is human and divine. So last week we looked at this clause within the creed. It says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. There's a lot of stuff that we could pick apart within this passage, but last week we specifically looked at two clauses. One, all of this Everything that Jesus is doing is for us and for our salvation. And the hinge for us last week was the fact that Jesus became incarnate. He takes on flesh. He becomes human. The way that Eugene Peterson translates this in John 1 of his uh, message version of the Bible, he says, Jesus took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And last week, I always get hammered for uh, doing too long of introductions, but brace yourself because this is going to be a long introduction slash review. So if you weren't here, then give me a fist pump. Busted. (laughs) You should know better. But now you're going to get caught up to speed and see what it is that we were looking at last week, okay? So when we talk about Jesus moving into the neighborhood, there's three things that I think are important for us to understand. I'll also throw in some new stuff. I'll, I'll pepper in some new stuff for those of you that are faithful attenders the godly of the group, okay? Um, (laughs) Jesus identifies with us, and this is the point when he becomes human, when he takes on flesh, he can understand the things that we go through. Not only does that mean, uh, as Hebrews would say, that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, I also believe that Jesus stepping into a culture that was dominated by systemic oppression and prejudice, by a political empire that was subjugating people and that Jesus would ultimately die at their hands. This is resonant with a lot of folks within even American culture where they feel the object of systemic racism or prejudice or they feel marginalized and ostracized and pushed out, and Jesus can identify with that as one who gave his life at the cost of a political empire. You see, it's not just Jesus understands the the sin nature that we have or the temptation that we go through. It's Jesus identifying with us at an even greater understanding that He has taken on flesh and He knows what it's like to be hungry and He knows what it's like to be in pain and He knows what it's like to mourn. And last week we looked at that verse. Jesus wept, and I tried to unpack some of the theological significance there and the beauty of the fact that this was not like a robot Jesus who was just going through the motions. This was a Jesus who could sympathize with us by being where we are. When you guys feel alone and when you guys feel the weight of whatever it is that you're dealing with, you have a Savior that can identify with you in the midst of that darkness. Jesus identifies with us, and this is one of the important things that we get from the incarnation. That's a fancy word for Jesus taking on flesh and blood. But Jesus' life also provides an implicit critique of our own. When we look At Jesus, the things that he was able to do, remember that clause in Hebrews, yet he was without sin, living within the midst of this oppressive state of affairs. Jesus provides an example of what it looks like to submit, to suffer well. Jesus provides us an example of one who has power, yet he places his own power on the back and does not try to become the dominant figure in sense of political uh, ideologies or uh, aspirations for power and authority. Jesus provides a model where those who serve will be great, where the last will be first. And when we think about our own cultural context, and perhaps I can just point the finger right here, we have aspirations and we have drives to become Great, but that's not always on a spiritual scale. In fact, it's usually, at least I'm just talking to me here, it's we want to become noteworthy. We want to be a, a person of status and influence. We want to be one who can rise the ranks in whatever job and we can get the raises and we can have the big bank account in the sweet house on the lake. We can have the backyard with the fence so that we can just open up that back door and Porter can run and run and run. Porter's my dog. Instead of me or Kate walking him, I was gonna, it was, was a self edit, okay? I love you, Kate, you're special. Um, where we have these ideas uh, and, and dreams that don't always correspond to following Jesus who says, if you want to become my disciple, you must pick up your cross and follow me and don't forget that your cross is an implement of torture and death. And what Jesus calls us to is not overly romantic or easy. It's weighty, but it's oh so good. So Jesus identifies with us in our humanity. He also provides an implicit critique of of the way that we do life. And when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we see the shortcomings that we have. And we can aspire to be more like Jesus. We also see that in Jesus, the story of Israel is complete, and I don't mean this to be a bust on um, our Jewish friends, but I do believe that Jesus takes the story of the Old Testament, and he brings it to its conclusion. We see uh, this play itself out in a number of different ways. One scholar, perhaps my favorite scholar, N.T. Wright, says, the story of Jesus always appears as the denouement of some other story or set of stories. Everybody say denouement, and flashback to ninth grade English as you're plotting like the structure of narratives and no, is that just, just me? Okay. Well, this is like the important part of the story, but you can't understand Jesus without understanding the larger narrative structure in which he falls. This is interesting because, and this is not a bus, but anytime we have a new Christian, what do we tell them to go read? Oh, the book of John. The book of John is probably one of the most difficult of the Gospels, but we're, we're sending them right to the story without the background. This is akin to saying, oh, you want to read Harry Potter? Why don't you just uh, start in the Goblet of Fire or the Order of the Phoenix? No. <laughs> you do not do that because you are ruining the story. You've got to start with the beginning, Okay. I don't know what happened over there, but I'll I'll roll with it. You've got to start with the beginning. You don't just send them right into the middle of the story. This is also like um, somebody that wants to watch Karate Kid. You don't show them Karate Kid Part 2 without seeing Karate Kid Part 1 first. You won't know what Daniel and Mr. Miyagi are doing in Okinawa. You won't know that without the background of Karate Kid Part 1. The crane and Elizabeth's shoe and all the things that are going on in Part 1 is... You most certainly do not give them this atrocity with Jaden Smith, where he has ruined the whole series of Karate Kid movies. You don't do that. In the same way, perhaps, and of course, yeah, you can, you can open up your Bible and begin to read John because it's a fascinating story. You might scratch your head a little bit and not have any idea what's going on at parts, but what you get that you don't get in the other three Gospels is Jesus teaching, there's just long, if you have a red letter version of the Bible, you'll have long passages of these beautiful red letters where Jesus is just teaching. He's, he's one who is um, a lot more vocal in the book of John than in uh, the other, they're called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They look a lot more similar than John, who's a really strange guy. But N.T. Wright talks about this, and I believe this is the, the new stuff that might help us to frame our understanding of where we're going tonight he talks about the Bible as a five-act play. And this is awesome. But what he says is the Bible is moving uh, from the first act to the fifth act and the first act is creation where we see and however you reconcile this story it's okay there's room for you at the table here but you see this first couple that has been placed within the garden they have this job to take care of the garden to take care of the animals to be God's representatives on the earth to rule over the animals that does not mean that they get to mistreat them that means that they get to take care of them And they're also given a command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is where some of you are like, say, okay, that seems a little bit strange, but just stick with me here, because in the story, what we're seeing theologically is humanity is created within the image and likeness of God, they're given a job to do, and they don't do it. And because they do not do it, there are consequences of that act of faithlessness what Christians would call the fall. This is when sin enters into the world and things go from very good, as we hear in Genesis, to not really so good. God is still in covenant with his people. God is still in relationship with his people, but there's something that has gone awry in the nature of humanity and even in the nature of the earth. This is where Paul says in Romans 8 that the the earth is crying out and groaning with anticipation for what Jesus will do. Everything gets jacked up because of this sin. And you could even say, because of our sin and how we participate in that, we demonstrate that there is a problem here but we don't go from creation to fall to Jesus. You see, there's this word Israel here, and there's a 1,000 pages within the Old Testament that demonstrates that even Old Testament Israel does not get this right. God still in relationship with his people. calls them to do a job, and they don't do it, and he keeps giving them chance after chance after chance after chance, and they keep demonstrating themselves to be a people who are more concerned with themselves or with appeasing the people around them or with following this God or that God or, Trying to get this girl or that girl, that's real. And here we see that it's not until Jesus shows up within the larger narrative of the story where we can understand what it is that he is doing. In a sense, he is becoming everything that we were not becoming. He is becoming everything that God intended us to become. He is the representative and he is the one who is, in a sense, if you wanna use Genesis language, he is reigning and ruling in God's stead over the earth. He is the one who is living up to that cause all, setting an example for us, but also, as we'll see, paying for the sins that we have committed, righting the wrongs of the world. This is the story of the gospel in a nutshell, and you have to see this in light of its larger story. Now, what's really cool about this, and just allow me three minutes here, maybe four. I don't know. Don't time me. It'll be fine. Okay. So we've got Jesus who shows up in the fourth act of this play. And what N.T. Wright says is the fifth act of the play is actually the church. And what's really interesting about this is what we have in the New Testament, we've got the life of Jesus and we've got a little bit of the early church and then it's just kind of over. So what he says is the Bible is our script but we don't just take the words and then act them out literally. What he says is we take the script and we, we improvise what the characters would do in our situation and in our context. Now this is fascinating because what they're saying is, we're taking the structure of the Bible, we're taking its principles, we're taking its teachings, we're taking its theology, and then we are acting in a way that is appropriate with that as the background. Now think about this for a second. This is Billy Taylor. Yes. Billy Taylor is a jazz pianist. Billy Taylor did this fascinating interview on, it was like a 60 minutes sort of thing, but it was maybe in the 70s or so. Um, and he was playing all this jazz music and when you think about jazz, especially jazz improvisation, you think they're just going nuts. They're not playing anything that sounds anything like the, the drummer's doing whatever the drummer's doing and the piano player's doing what the piano player's doing, and the bass players doing. They're just all over the place. But what Billy Taylor is saying, there is a structure that you have to have that's laid down in order for you to improvise what you're doing. There has to be this base, this foundation for you to be able to deviate from that and to address the needs of the moment, That is a beautiful way of understanding an ancient book that was written in the first century as 21st century Americans where we are looking at the foundation and the structure and we are trying to make application of this book in our own context. Where it doesn't always have chapter and verse, here's the things that you're dealing with, but we have to understand what that foundation is being laid so that we can act appropriately within those given contexts. Okay, that's a sidebar. We'll get back to Jesus now. This is the part of the creed I want us to look at this evening, and I don't think I have a whole lot to say about it, but I can prove myself to be wrong uh, on most days, so bear with me. It says, he was crucified for us. Focus in on that. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. It's interesting that the only two humans that are listed within the creed are Mary and Pilate. And if ever you had two stark contrasts, it would be Mary who when the angel shows up, she says basically, let's do this. And then you have Pilate over here who's the one who's crucifying Jesus. It's interesting the contrast between the two, but that's not where we're going today. That's a talk for another time, okay? He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He was crucified for us. Now, if we're just gonna look at Paul, he's gonna, he's gonna layer this on, okay? And I don't really like this style of preaching, but I'm just gonna hit you a few times with text after text after text that demonstrates this to be the case. This is 2 Corinthians 5. This is probably the classic text, if we're talking about atonement type stuff, the death of Jesus and what it does for us, okay? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or you might have memorized who hangs on a tree, something to that effect in Galatians chapter 3. Romans 5, we're going to read 6 and 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Luke Timothy Johnson is a Catholic New Testament scholar and he says, in Paul, the meaning of Jesus' existence as a whole is expressed by his dying for our sake, for us and for our salvation. Not only did Jesus come into the world, not only does Jesus identify with you in your weakness, not only does Jesus understand your temptations and the things that you go through, but Jesus also sacrificed himself for us and for our salvation. This is what scholars would call the atonement. And this is kind of a chintzy way of understanding it, but you can think of at one meant where what was separated is now at one where what was once distance is now brought together through this act of Jesus now the bible unfortunately it doesn't necessarily clarify how this takes place but it gives us a lot of different ways to understand what is going on here and it is achieved this at-one-man is achieved through the death and resurrection and exaltation, as we'll see in the weeks to come, of Jesus. The cross is the center of the atonement. I believe this is Scott McKnight. He says, the cross is the center of the atonement. Of course, there would be no cross were it not for God becoming human, which is the incarnation, which we looked at last week, and without the resurrection, which we'll look at next week, the cross's work would be incomplete, but neither of those points can be permitted to minimize how important the death of Jesus is to the New Testament authors all throughout the bible we see christ died for us and for our salvation this is no small theme within the landscape of the bible and this is what the story has been leading up to where jesus would sacrifice himself for us i want you to sit in that for a moment And perhaps even think through the teaching that you've heard about this growing up and think how you understand what that means and what his sacrifice actually does for you. I think a lot of times we kind of just move past that and expect it to work without necessarily understanding what is going, is going on here. All throughout the New Testament, I've got two things I want to say. We'll look at some metaphors and the different ways that the New Testament authors understand what Jesus actually did. And if you were able to catch a glimpse in your mind of how you understand that, what I want to do is blow it up in the nicest of ways and then add 15 different things to it. Okay? We usually try to encapsulate the work of Jesus into this small metaphor I and mean, throughout the New Testament, there's metaphor on top of metaphor on top of metaphor that helps us to understand the lengths that Jesus went to and what it actually means for us and for our salvation. So. We'll talk about the metaphors and we'll actually see what this has to do with us. So the metaphors of the atonement, there's a handful of different ones, but we see one that's very clear. It's a sacrificial metaphor where Jesus' death functions as an offering. And here we're gonna dip back into Old Testament teaching where you're just imagining somebody going to the temple and taking their animals, the whole burnt offering and those sorts of things. And Jesus becomes that for us, especially Hebrews makes this prominent where Jesus is this sacrificial lamb that is offered on our behalf. We also see there's a legal metaphor where Jesus' death is the means for our justification. So we are guilty because of our sin, because of the things that we have committed against God, the different ways that we have gone. And Jesus allows that guilty verdict to be overturned. Instead of us standing before God hearing guilty, we become cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus. And God says, I see you through the work of my son. There's a, a guilt and a non-guilt aspect to this legal metaphor. We also see the interpersonal metaphor where Jesus' death allows us to be reconciled to God and to others and in a sense to the entire world. This is one of my favorite ones because what's happening here is the relationship between us and God is rectified and usually what we tend to import there is, my sin makes God angry and he's super ticked at me. And I need Jesus to do something to make that okay, or else God is going to squash me like a bug. I think that we've totally underestimated what this story actually is. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, catch this, in the Old Testament, the word that's usually translated forgive actually means to carry And when God is forgiving, what he's doing is he's taking the weight of the sin and the mistreatment and the whatever and he is owning it himself in order to preserve the relationship that he has with his people. My advisor used to give this story. You guys familiar with Eric Clapton? Of course you are, he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Are you familiar with George Harrison? One of the Beatles, perhaps the most overrated group of all time, but this is just my own opinion here, okay? and I've just isolated half the room, thank you very much. Okay, So we've got George Harrison and we've got Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton writes a song called Layla, which is actually about George Harrison's wife that he steals from George Harrison, but George Harrison and Eric Clapton remain good friends. Why? Because George Harrison takes that mistreatment and owns it because he wants to continue to be friends with Eric Clapton. This is reconciliation. It's not that God is so ticked and angry that something's gotta happen in order for us to be back in relationship. We, we do our worst to God and God takes it and owns it because he loves us. And when we see the picture of Jesus on the cross, he's not trying to pacify his mad dad in the sky. What he's doing is he's taking this relationship to its logical extreme where we keep pushing him away to the point of death. And he says, even you killing me will not squelch the love that I have for you. I want to be reconciled. That's one of the metaphors of what Jesus does for us On the cross, he takes the worst things that we can throw at him and he says, I'm gonna put it to death because I desperately want to be in relationship with you. There's a commercial metaphor as well where Jesus' death is the payment for our redemption. So sometimes we sing about like how there's a debt that we owe and Jesus goes to the cross and he pays that debt that we could not owe ourselves. We see that's like a a transactional term. Um, We are redeemed by that. There's a military metaphor where Jesus pays for our ransom. So we are captive, we are prisoners, perhaps of sin and death and whatever. And Jesus goes to the cross and he pays that ransom that we could not pay, Jesus takes care of, of that and allows us to be free. This kind of leads into this idea, which I think is pretty awesome. It's called Christus Victor. There's just a couple left. Christus Victor is this idea that when Jesus dies, what he defeats is evil. This like personified um, Force, if you will, within the world. And this is especially clear within Mark's gospel where when Jesus shows up, the things that he keeps doing over and over is casting out demons. There seems to be something against Jesus that is otherworldly and his death on the cross finally puts the nail in that coffin where because of Jesus, we are no longer oppressed by evil and sin and we are no longer bound by death. Jesus is the victor. There's also a metaphor of the crucified God, and I just came into this in the last year or so. There's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who's this stud of an 85-year-old German guy who writes these really heady books, but one of the things that he is famous for is Jesus identifies with people in their suffering so much so that he dies, much like many people suffer and die today. This is really popular in the two-thirds world where folks are just under systemic political oppression, and they can look to Jesus and say, he gets it because he was crucified, and he died, and he was suffering, and he was the crucified God who understands the oppression that we go through. This is not something that I resonate with as a white middle-class American male, but this is something that I see in Jesus, and it's it opens up the door for so many other people. There's people with other stories and other backgrounds that are so different than ours that are trying to identify with Jesus, the one who has given himself for not just us in America but for the entire world. Yet the way that we talk about him, we just limit him to this little slice in the things that we have known our entire life. There's one more, and it's like this shalom or wholeness idea where Jesus's death brings about peace. And I've talked about this In the past, because for some of you as you sit here, the world has been against you. Your parents have been against you. Your relationships have been against you. Your professors have been against you. Your employers have been against you. Whatever it is, the people have been against you. And what Jesus' death is trying to do is to make you whole. It's not just the fact that we're all sinful people, which I believe to be true. There's also this reconstitution or Jesus bringing about wholeness in our lives okay the good news of the gospel is this that in Christ God identifies with us so that we can be what God wants us to be and he accomplishes that through Jesus who offers us life and hope and peace There's one more thing that I want to bring out about the atonement, and that is seeing the atonement as praxis or seeing the atonement as uh, something that allows us to live differently. So Scott McKnight again says, uh, to be forgiven, to be atoned for, to be reconciled is to be granted a mission to become a reciprocal performer of the same in other words, if you have received forgiveness, if you have been atoned, if you have been reconciled, then you must also go to do the work of forgiving, to working atonement, and to becoming an agent of reconciliation. And this is the question where I want to leave us today. What does this look like in our society to be a people that follow Jesus, that have experienced atonement at one minute, where we have been ostracized, but we have been brought within to the family, what does that look like in our context? I want to suggest some things for us to consider. I believe that it looks like a life that is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ each and every day. Among other things, this shaping is exhibited in the courage that's needed to stand up against misogyny and sexism, prejudice and racism. To speak and to act out against the taunting and mistreatment, the violence and abuse that is perpetrated against our fellow human beings, and to do so with the boldness and power that only comes through the spirit of the resurrected Christ. It looks like selflessness, the difficult decision to place the interests of others ahead of your own to determine that you will fight not for financial advancement and prominence, not for your own comfort, but for the equality of others. A life shaped by atonement is exemplified in a life of simplicity, spurred on by the belief that we have enough, despite the rampant consumerism and greed that dominates our culture and claims otherwise. It is a radical generosity that gives to those who are engaged in doing good, to those who need a break, and to those who just need, to whomever the spirit leads you to give. In addition to these acts of like justice, a life shaped by atonement demonstrates a commitment to holiness, to living a life worthy of the calling that we have received. A life that's characterized by joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, as Paul would say. It looks like the sometimes heart-rending act of forgiveness. Ultimately, a life that is shaped by atonement looks like love if we just sit in here and we just talk about theories and philosophies and if we just look at this old dead creed and we don't leave energized and empowered to go be the hands and feet of Jesus, then let's just pack it up and call it a day. If we have occupied space here and we have not grown and we have not been transformed and we have not been inspired, then let's just call it a day. My hope is that Jesus takes such a hold of our hearts that we can do nothing other than to spread the gospel in a way that is compelling, in a way that is consistent, in a way that is authentic to the people around us, where we have not only received forgiveness and we have not only been atoned and we have not only received the goodness of God, but we actually become the agents of those things where we go out to talk about how good God is and we go out to be people that practice forgiveness and generosity, where we go out to allow people to be atoned, where we go out and we preach a message of wholeness and peace, where we go out and we talk about God not being mad but God taking all the stuff that that we can give at him and he just absorbs it because he wants desperately to be in relationship with you and all that it takes from us is a willingness to go there, The claim where we say Jesus Christ is Lord not just over my life but over the entire cosmos, over this whole place, and Jesus is doing a work that will bring about redemption, and I want in on that. My hope today is that we leave inspired and we leave... Excited, And we don't leave just dreary and bored and tired. But what we leave is in a sense of expectancy that if you ask, Jesus will show up. And if you are waiting for him to be present, he will be present in your life. And if you're hoping for opportunities, he will give you opportunities. I hope that we become a people who cares about those who are not in this room. And we go and we fight for them and we invite them into this story. Is so good, so much better than the order of the phoenix. And the order of the phoenix is pretty good. My hope tonight is that we see Jesus for who he is, that we become thankful for what he's done for us, and that we look to spread that good news with those all around us.